We've got this great constitution. It certainly prohibits any form of violence. But when we step inside of our homes, many of us leave that constitution behind and we subscribe to a set of values determined by religion. Most religions are made in this patriarchal mold. So you've got women across religions and cultures having to grapple with this in their homes. This is Expanding Horizons. Candid conversations, passionate people, important issues. Produced by the Jesuit Institute, South Africa. Joanne Joseph has worked for many years in the media industry and has always chosen to face issues of social justice. This was instilled in her by her Catholic education. The anchor of Talk Radio 702's Afternoon Drive talks to us about gender-based violence, the systemic issues, and the struggle for justice. I am Russell Pollitt, and this is Expanding Horizons. Joanne, thank you very much for agreeing to come and talk to us and to do this podcast. Tell us a little bit about yourself, where you come from, your family, your interests, your hobbies. So thanks very much for having me, first of all, Russell. Very unusual to be on this side of the mic and very intimidating, <laughs> I might tell you, for having you on the other side. But I'm from Durban. That's where I grew up. I uh, What can I say about myself that's interesting? I mean, I've, I've worked in the media for a number of years. I never studied journalism. I'm a literature student, a drama and film student, and kind of fell into my profession quite by accident. But I think I come from an interesting family. Grew up in the very large township of Chatsworth in Durban, and very fortunate to have a mom and dad, May and Andy, who were very geared towards education, culture, and that kind of thing. So they exposed my brother Jeremy and me to a lot of interesting things and kind of opened the world up to us in an interesting way. And I think they are probably responsible for our life choices in a number of ways, you know, that um, we've become interested in a lot of things, in a lot of different things. We love, I love literature, I love music. One of my biggest hobbies is just sitting quietly with a box of chocolates and reading. (laughs) I like the box of chocolates part. (laughs) (laughs) But I do, I mean, I'm also studying at the moment, doing another literature degree. And yeah, so that's largely what takes up my time. But I'm also married. I have a beautiful daughter who's just turned 13. Oh, a teenager in the house now. Yes, exactly. So I have a a mini version of myself to argue with every day. (laughs) And (laughs) no, but it's it's a good life, you know, and I'm very grateful for all the opportunities I've been given along the way. It's interesting, Joanne, you said you studied literature, but you Mm -hmm. got into the media. And throughout your media career, you've always been willing to tackle issues of justice. I remember interviewing you years ago about the book that you wrote, Drug Mule. Yes. What brought you to to wanting to tackle these areas specifically of justice, social justice. Yes. I suppose, you know, there was a consciousness of it cultivated in me when I was a teenager. Mm. I was very privileged to go to a Catholic school in Durban, Maristella. And why I'm proud of that is because it was a space in which the liberation of one's mind was encouraged. Mm. So, I mean, there was the Catholic ethos, but the teachers were extremely emancipated in their thinking. Their approach to teaching was quite unusual. They challenged us to think about social justice issues as young women and about our role possibly in changing the status quo where important things like equality don't exist. And I remember experiencing that for the first time in my drama class, Mm. where that is where you are grappling with texts for the first time. And in those texts, you're seeing echoes of real life because those texts become mirrors of society. 
And there they expose to you, you know, what has gone wrong, the inequality, mm. the discrimination and the like. And that's where I began to get a sense of it. Discrimination of a racial kind, discrimination of a gendered kind, discrimination of an LGBTI kind, you know, homophobia and all of the things that have gripped our society. And those somehow took root in my consciousness. Mm. And somehow when I fell into broadcasting several years later, it became part of my my canon of work. I don't know if one can really describe it that way because I don't know if a broadcaster has a canon of work. Mm. You know, it's just a turnover from one day to another of important issues that we hope to cover. But I hope that I have drawn those ideas and the reality of those injustices into my work as much as possible because they've they've worried me mm. for a long time. Mm. Something that's worrying you at the moment and you've spoken a lot about is this question of gender-based violence. We've seen this recently in South Africa. I mean, this is not something that suddenly just appeared. I mean, it's sort of been with us since the year dot probably. But there's a real consciousness that's emerging of just how bad things are when it comes to the treatment of women. Yes. And you've been listening to people's stories and what's happened to them. I mean, this is a huge plague in South Africa and indeed across the world, but specifically here. Yeah. You know, I, I'm haunted by these stories, Russell. Mm. They follow me everywhere. Mm. I think about them. Sometimes I dream about them. I read about them all the time. And as you say, I interact with the people who've been the victims of them. And when we talk about gender-based violence, I mean, we largely talk about women because mm. those are the statistics in the country. Mm. But gender-based violence actually at its root has patriarchy, you know. That is really the seed out of which it germinates. And everyone is affected by it, regardless of whether you're a man or woman, whether you're a child. It has consequences for everybody. Mm. And those stories, those stories have stayed with me because the cause of women and children in particular really needs to be fought in this country mm. in one way or another. We cannot continue believing that it's okay to continue like this as a society. Something that puzzled me for years when we came through the transition into democracy was mm. how, as black women, we are so conscious of racism against mm. us, right? That in an interaction in which we perceive racism, we pick it up immediately. We attribute that unfairness or discrimination to racism. But when we are discriminated against as women, we accept it. Mm. So many of, of the women we know as freedom fighters were in a situation where they were fighting for liberation and they fought alongside the very men who oppressed them within that structure as well. Mm, mm. And how do they accept that? How do we accept that as women? Mm. There's a kind of intersectional discrimination that's gone on that has to do with race, that has to do with gender and class. Mm, and mm. often the woman's body is the one on which it converges. Mm. And there can be no equality in our society unless we come to the conclusion that racism although it's been given a lot of bad press and a lot of airtime, misogyny is as bad as racism. Mm. That classism is as bad as misogyny and racism. Mm. And once we come to terms with that, I think we'll be able to deal with it much better in society. Mm. It's a little harder, of course, to, for example, pinpoint a misogynist because these things work in very kind of subtle ways yes. than for someone who is out there screaming racist remarks to whoever it is. Right. And that's probably part of the power of this that it somehow grips the consciousness in a very subtle way. And, of course, children are brought up into this system. I mean, yes. th this system is not something that suddenly just happens. From the day we're born, yeah. we're kind of formed in these different roles. 
which is a very dangerous thing, it seems to me, more and more. Yes, it's such a dangerous thing. And and the reason we don't pick it up is because we're so inured to it. Mm. So as you say, we've got this binary of boy and girl, and that's how we're raised. We're raised in those roles. We also raise our children through that prism of achievement if you're a boy Mm. and settling for second best if you're a girl. So those kinds of messages are being fed to us very early on. Mm. So while men are often the purveyors of patriarchy, there's also a kind of internalized misogyny that occurs with a lot of women. Mm. There's an interesting phenomenon on my show where, and I think 702 has been quite brave in this regard, putting a woman on an afternoon show like this, because the convention across the world is that an afternoon drive show on a talk radio station is a traditionally sort of white right-wing male perspective that's presented. So they put a black female, an Indian black female, onto this program. And some of the people who grapple the most with my opinionated self are women. Hmm. So there are men who will phone in and they'll say the usual things that misogynistic men say. Hmm. But then there are women who'll support them and who'll say, it wasn't your place to say that. (laughs) And so that's what we're trying to root out now, Russell. We've Hmm. got to root out the conditioning. We've got to go back to where it comes from. And we've got to root it out. And it requires us to go back into our intimate spaces of our homes, Mm. which are really the incubators for Mm. that kind of thinking. Mm. And it'll turn your life upside down if you choose to go back to your home today. If you are a woman who is living in that hierarchical type of home, which I think many South African women are, tens of millions of us, to go back to your home today and say, actually, I've worked a really long day. I've got out of bed early in the morning. I've got the kids ready for school. I've made them breakfast. I've made sure they got their transport. I went out to a full day's work. I come home. You have been at home the entire day because you're unemployed. I'm not cooking dinner. Mm. Cook it yourself. Mm. It's a small thing, but it's a very revolutionary thing. Mm. But it's also, it's a deeply dangerous thing in Mm. a way to turn patriarchy on its head Mm. because the consequences can be so physical in terms of violence. Mm. This is not just in one sphere of life. I mean, if one thinks about it, one's dealing with this culturally, you know, that there's cultural norms when it comes to patriarchy. In South Africa, we have a high percentage of the population that's religious across the board. Yes. I think it's about 80 or 90% of people in this country believe in something or follow some sort of religious tradition. Many religious traditions also have been tainted by patriarchy. I mean, the whole history of Christianity is a patriarchal one. We cannot deny that. So it's also, it's multifaceted, yes, this, because yes. it's not just the cultural thing that's expected, but it's the religious thing too. Absolutely. And those things are often, they cross over and they lie on each other. Mm. So you're not often able to break those things up in your own life and experience. But think about this, Russell. We've got this great constitution, right, which prevents or should, it certainly prohibits any form of violence, gender-based violence. And we buy into that on a superficial level as South Mm. Africans. But when we step inside of our homes, as we cross that doorstep, many of us leave that constitution behind, Mm -hmm. right? And we subscribe to a set of values determined by religion. Mm. And it may be a Judeo-Christian religion, it may be Islam, it may be Hinduism, whatever it is, Mm. Most religions, as you have mentioned, are made in this patriarchal mold. Mm. So you've got women across religions and cultures having to grapple with this in their homes. Now, 
It's not possible for government to put a policeman in every single home. Mm. So how does government legislate for what happens in private spaces? Mm. People find that quite offensive. Mm. I mean, think of the new smacking law uh, mm. of late, where people say, you won't tell me what to do with my children. <laughs> all right? Yes. They've sort of got the idea that the government can tell them what to do with their wives, all right? That they're not allowed to smack their wives. Not that they necessarily respect that law, but they can internalize it. The idea of government crossing into the constitution crossing into your private space seems like an invasion to most people. And as a result, when they walk in, those cultural and those religious norms take over. And we slip into those roles. So you may be a high-powered businesswoman who walks out of a boardroom into her home and all of a sudden the hierarchy shifts. Mm. Mm. And her husband is in charge again. And she's the primary caregiver and he only does a certain percentage of things in the house because he's fulfilling the role of a man. Mm. And this, for me, is where all of these religious institutions could actually become involved. Because in a manner of speaking, they have more power than government does in those private spaces. So why are we not hearing more people speak out from the pulpit, for example? Mm. And that may be a pulpit in a mosque or a pulpit in a temple or a pulpit in a church. Why are we not hearing men condemn this? Mm. I think it's because it's convenient, this is the way it has always been in these religions. Men have always been in charge. The center of power has always rested with them. And women wielding power are seen as a danger somehow mm. to these systems, that if there is enough revolt, they could perhaps collapse these systems that have stood for centuries. Mm. We, we have this wonderful ability as human beings to compartmentalize our lives. <laughs> this is true. And, and yeah. you point exactly to that there where you say a high-powered businesswoman comes home and she's been running something all day. And then when she gets home, she suddenly becomes subservient. Yes. There's this yeah. thing in the human psyche that somehow we compartmentalize this and we justify it through all sorts of strange means. Yes. I'm intrigued by that. And I'm intrigued by our reading of religious texts as well. Mm. I'm also intrigued by the fact that, first of all, a lot of translation and mistranslation and misinterpretation has gone on over the centuries. The omission of gospels and things like that from religious texts. So the very fact that we believe that we are reading from a holistic text mm. is problematic to start off with. Secondly, we've got the issue of custom that is so interwoven into these religious texts that we don't often look at a text and say, well, this is a person living in this time who has recorded this particular event and who has overlaid it with his own patriarchal customary behavior. Mm. Is that the core of what we want to believe? Are we able to strip these things away to see what is at the core of what's being said here? Mm. And we're not prepared to do that work, number one. I don't know if it's too hard or it's too inconvenient, but we buy into these texts wholly without question. Mm. And that for me is a problem. I mean, I often ask myself, if you wanted to tell a story of the crucifixion of Christ, it's great to have Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, their perspectives after, you know, how, however long those texts were composed. Mm. But what about the text of the woman who gave birth to the man on the cross and had to watch him being publicly humiliated mm. and crucified? I mean, why do we not hear her voice? Mm. And we've carried that into our modern-day religion, that women adopt particular roles, and I think you've spoken about this in the past, where women adopt particular roles where they remain in the background, where their contribution to the church is supplementary mm. 
to the power that men exercise, where they participate and their voices are sometimes heard, but they don't make decisions Mm. about the future of the church. Mm. So if we as women, and women in the church or women in the mosque or women in the synagogue, if we do not choose at this point to stand up and look at all these things and demand that all of these things be looked at in a more serious way, and demand that in order to be relevant to the modern age, that our religion actually be scrutinized mm. in a more academic way. What future is there in terms of relevance mm. for these religious organizations? Mm. They may as well, as far as gender-based violence is concerned, not exist because what good do they do in mm. our society? What do they change? Mm. I read a very interesting piece by one of your writers, Paulina French, who is clearly angry Mm. And feels, I think, like as a lot of women do in the church, that women are just not being heard. Mm. When are we going to be heard? That's what she asks. Have you heard of all these girls? Have you heard of Uyinene Mkhetwana? Have you heard of all the others who've become the victims of gender-based violence? And if you've heard of them, why hasn't it touched you enough to speak about it from the pulpit and to condemn it? Mm. But also to take your male congregation, your boys and your men, and remold them because you supposedly have the tools to do that. Mm. Your religion supposedly gives you the tools to do that. Why not take the young women in the church and make them feel worthy of being a part of that church? Mm. Give them a, a, not just a sense of, of belonging there, but a sense of power in that church. Mm. I remember, Russell, a moment in my life when I was a teenager when the Anglican church had a vote on was sort of a referendum that was carried out on whether women should become priests. And I remember sitting there between my parents and, and feeling outraged. I was so outraged because it's all in the Bible, isn't it? If Christ came and broke these patriarchal conventions in which men and women were not allowed to worship together and the like, and, and he created a kind of equality a kind of gender equality that didn't really exist in that time or breached social conventions in terms of that. Why are we asking in the 20th century whether women should become priests or not? The answer is obvious. And yet we are putting it to men in the church and we are putting it to women in the church, both of whom feel constrained by patriarchy, and asking them whether this is the right thing to do or not. Hmm. It enraged me. So that's a very powerful reflection because... The Anglican Church has dealt with that in one sense, and then they started to argue about whether women could be bishops now that they were priests. In the yeah. Catholic Church, I mean, there is. We, we cannot deny this. There are many people that are speaking about the question of women and ministry. And as we talk, there's a synod going on in Rome where one of the big issues that's been raised is the question of married priests yes. in the Amazonian region and also the question of the role of women. Yes. And I think that's you point to something there that's very important. The question of text as well. and being a literary scholar, one of the problems we have is it's very easy to take a couple of verses and to construct a whole reality around those verses True. rather than say these verses occur in the corpus of something which is much bigger and therefore in that context, what might this mean? Right. So, right. for example, if we take the words of Jesus, he gives two commandments, love the love. Lord your God and love your neighbor. But somehow things are not seen through that prism, we can pull out one of these obscure little texts that says something about women or about whoever else yes. and construct a whole reality around that, which is a convenience to uphold a status quo. Absolutely. And, and those serve political systems. They serve monetary systems. So there's a reason that those are perpetuated. Mm. 
I don't claim to be a Christian as such, but I was raised as a Christian. And the reason I don't claim to be a Christian is because I think it's one of the hardest things to call yourself. Because if you're on that journey, it's hard work. It's such hard work. And perhaps it's hard work that I sometimes don't feel capable of myself. But if love is the core of Christianity, mm. right, if that is the, the founding principle of this system of spiritual belief or religion, why are we not able to return to that core belief when we look at issues like this? If a man is beating a woman, it is in contradiction to that principle of love. Mm. If we are discriminating against homosexuals, it is in contradiction. If we are racist, it is in contradiction to that principle. So there are so many examples of how the core of the religion ought to be the basic principle by which people live their lives if they choose to do so as Christians. I don't understand how people cannot relate the events of our current society with that core principle. Hmm. That if you are guilty of any of those things, you are breaking the very fundamental basis of Christianity. Hmm. And that's what we talk about, for example, in Christian marriage, we talk about this relationship of equality and of mutual love. Yes. And if that's at the foundation of this relationship, one does wonder how people can accept anything that hints at inequality in that relationship. Because I think as well that gender-based violence is not just necessarily a physical thing. No. Very often no. it's a psychological, yes. it's an emotional uh, thing. It's much bigger. Yes. And so you will hear many women that accept their state in life. They may not be physically harmed, but emotionally and yes. psychologically, yes. there's very little love that's shown. And that's true. And it just goes back to that one basic question as well. Is there equality in marriage? And in this context, is there equality in Christian marriage? Mm. In the books there is. Yeah, yeah. In the practice there's <laughs> yeah. not. Ah, this right. is the problem. Yes. It's, it's like the constitution of yes. this country. Yes. It's wonderful. Mm -hmm. So that interests me too because once upon a time, you used to have a line in your marriage vows that said, I promise to obey my husband. Fortunately, we, we never did that. I don't that. think you used no, that no, line. No, I don't <laughs> use that line, as I recall. <laughs> but, but it's a case of, I mean, how equal is your marriage? How equal do you believe your wife is to you? How equal do you believe your sisters are to you? How equal do you believe your mother is to you or your mother is to your father? Hmm. And if we go down to those very basic questions, then it takes us back to religious institutions. And you have to ask female parishioners or female members of, of religious institutions, are you equal? Does hmm. your institution see you as being equal? If you're not allowed to stand up there and preach, even though you may have a calling, you may have a vocation, does the church see you as equal? God sees you as equal, if that's what you buy into, but the church doesn't. Mm -hmm. Is that a problem? Mm -hmm. Is that not a fundamental problem, that you walk into a place every week where you're a second-class citizen? Mm -hmm. And that is what has long bothered me about institutionalized religion is that at times you will walk into a, any kind of religious institution where you don't feel that you are equal to the men in that building. Mm. And that's not good enough. Mm. And I see, I think one of the powerful things that women are doing is fighting that from within the church. Mm. And their voices ought to be heard. I just don't, I don't think there's enough of that though. And I think there needs to be a kind of feminist anger that builds up within religious institutions to start changing the status quo. Earlier you spoke about one of the things to begin to open this up 
to talk about it from the pulpit. And what are the other ways that you, as a woman, listening to these stories, think oh. avenues we should explore in terms of trying to deal with this big monster called gender-based violence or whatever you want to call it? Because we need to deal with it not just in the religious realm, we need to deal yes. with it in our society as well. And yeah. of course, there's a crossover between those two. What are the things that we can begin immediately to do? Russell, I think we need to start young, right? We need to get the kids while they're young into this mindset of believing they're equal. My daughter's school is introducing a kind of movement called Think Equal. And it was brought in by a filmmaker called Leslie Adwin, who'd gone to India and she'd looked at a very serious rape case there that had caused ordinary people to pour out into the streets in their millions in protest against what had happened. It was a gang rape. It took place on a bus. It was a horrific, horrific event in India's history. And it's one they'll never forget get because there was such an outpouring of public anger about it. And so she went abroad, she made this documentary, and it got her thinking that the fundamental problem was that in the society, the Indian society is so patriarchal mm. with its multiple cultures, because mm. it's not homogenous, right? It's quite mm. heterogeneous in terms of that. But all of those cultures largely subscribe to patriarchy. Mm. And that is the ultimate reason that girls don't believe themselves to be equal and boys believe they can take advantage of girls. Mm. And so... This Think Equal movement, I think it's going to be quite a positive thing, but there are many other movements like it that mm. are doing this. They're getting hold of kids when they're young at school and they're teaching them about equality. Mm. They're growing a consciousness of difference, all right? So this is a girl, she is different to you. This is a boy, he is different to you, but you are both equal. I'm mentioning this in very binary terms now, mm. which is an mm. oversimplification, but essentially this is a person of another religion, but we're going to learn about this other religion so that we develop respect and we develop empathy. And that's the whole thing. Any movement that develops empathy in mm. children when they're young will ultimately lead to a situation where they're less likely to commit acts of racism, xenophobia, gender violence and the like. Mm. So that for me is one important thing. Another important thing I think is from a religious point of view, the same way we do catechism classes or baptism classes or confirmation classes – why can we not get hold of the boys and the men in the church and start introducing something that teaches them about not a woman as a delicate little flower that we need to protect, but a woman is equal to us. Mm. A woman has the same rights as us. How do we ensure that we play a role in ensuring those rights are respected and that we respect those rights as, as young individuals? I mean, everything needs to change, really. The media has mm. a huge role to play in not just running one story after another about gender-based violence, but really asking the questions about what we can do to change that. On 702, we will be having a discussion in the next few days, um, which I'd like you to attend, by the way, <laughs> <laughs> about the justice system, mm. right? The notion of, particularly in rape and sexual assault trials, using an adversarial system, which is the convention. So if we think of the Timothy Omotoso trial, for example, mm. where he's accused of human trafficking and rape, we've seen Cheryl Zondi on the stand, right? Mm. And we've seen the rigorous and cruel cross-examination that she has undergone. Now, many of the elements of that cross-examination are indicators of rape culture, mm. right? So the woman got on the stand, she's asked things like, what was she wearing? Mm. You know, why did she not fight back? Why did she not scream? All of these sorts of things. And we're making the argument, 
at Prime Media that an adversarial system is no longer appropriate, particularly in a country with such huge rates of gender-based violence. And so we would like to engage the minister on this and start looking at an inquisitorial system that's far more sensitive towards rape survivors. Mm -hmm. So the law needs to change in that regard as well. There's so many aspects of it that we can come at it from, but there's also popular culture. Mm. You know, what are we consuming and what are our kids consuming? You look at certain genres and hip-hop is the one that jumps to mind. Mm. The debasing and denigration of women in those Mm. videos, you know, the fact that they look like commodities, they're treated like commodities in those videos, it's extremely disturbing. The language around Mm. it is disturbing as well. And so I think we can slowly start introducing things in the school system. Literature in this regard is extremely important. Mm. How many boys right now are reading books about girls who've survived gender-based violence or women who've survived gender-based violence? It's not in the syllabus Mm. because, you know, although our children are are having sex early, falling pregnant early, being raped, you know, at an early age, the subject matter is too sensitive to tackle. Mm. You know, open your eyes, Mm. look at what is happening around you and adapt the education system to it as best you can. Mm. So, Russell, there are lots of fronts Mm. we need to fight Uh, I just want to come back to the media thing because I think that's quite important. There is sometimes a sense that, you know, a lot of the stuff, if there's a story of somebody who's raped, and we've seen numerous stories like that in the recent past, or there's xenophobia or there's racism, there seems to be a banging on about that the whole time. But as soon as there's another story that may get more people listening, we jump onto the next thing. It seems sometimes as well, we're not very sincere when it comes to telling these stories. It's more about making sure that we get the listenership or the viewership or the readership or whatever else. I just want to ask you about that and your thoughts around that, because it seems to me as well that when the news almost becomes entertainment. Yes. And and that's a problem. Yes. That's a problem too. Yeah. And that almost works in a reverse way because, oh, well, you know, it's just another one you yes. know, to entertain us. Yes. And this doesn't seem to help the situation. No, it doesn't. And I think it is a big worry. I think part of that has to do with the juniorization of our newsrooms. Mm. The fact that we do not have a lot of people in newsrooms who read anymore. Can you believe that? Mm. We don't. I we can. don't have a lot of readers. I met a 21-year-old the other day who proudly told me he'd never read a book from cover to cover in his life. Wow. And he's finished school and he's in university. Wow. I nearly fell off the chair. (laughs) Well, you know what? He's not necessarily in the minority. Um, This is something we are grappling with in newsrooms. But of course, all your coverage will remain superficial Mm. if these are the people who are covering the stories. And here you need the guidance of very seasoned journalists to actually say, how are we going to tackle it? Those discussions take time, right? And often they're very heated because you've got men who are in the room who are also reactionary Mm. and don't believe that gender-based violence should be covered. Perhaps it should not get the same amount of airtime that it does or you know oh, we've done all these stories before or this is so similar to Uyunene's story why are we doing this story mm. and the women's voices in these institutions need to be heard women need to stand up and say listen I've got a problem with the way we've run the story or I refuse to run the story in this form on my show mm. or on my show today we're not just going to do a quick hit to a reporter in the field who's going to tell us how Uyunene died We're going to look at all the factors involved here. Mm. We're going to look at the justice system. We're going to look at the police handling of the case. We're going to look at the consequences for the family. We're going to look at the plight of other university students at UCT who find themselves in much the same situation. The moment you start delving deeper and you start looking at a story holistically and you're able to draw out those other angles, that sort of 
that unearth the superficial way of doing things in the past, then you start to grapple with the heart of the problem. That's what we try really hard to do on Afternoon Drive. And I'm fortunate I've got two brilliant producers working with me, Genilwe Sebola and Sekhovatsa Murule, who are also women committed to this ideal. Mm. And as a result of that, we're able to sit together and draw out different angles because we are committed to the cause. But that's what we need to do as women in newsrooms. We have mm. to insist that these stories are covered. Even when your male editor tells you, you know, you've given it too much airtime, mm. sometimes you've got to say, stuff you. I'm doing this. Mm. And it's a difficult thing to do. But mm. sometimes you have to be insubordinate. Because so you're not only being insubordinate to your boss, you're being insubordinate to patriarchy when you mm. stand up against this. And that's important. Mm. That's powerful. <laughs> you're a parent. You spoke about taking children young and getting them to think about these issues to help them to really believe in equality. Yes. It seems to me as well that the big gap there is parents and parenting. I mean, we need yes. to rethink the way that we parent. Yes, So, absolutely. for example, often amongst little kids, I hear things like, you know, boys are stronger than girls. Yes, or, I mean, yes. it's immediately there. And yeah. so parenting seems to also be under scrutiny and that has to shift. Yes. You know, it's funny, my mother actually pointed this out to me in a family that we encountered in the last few days that um, in a particular family, there's a boy who's given a lot of attention and there's a girl who's given very little attention. Mm. And actually, they're both very intelligent, successful children, but they come from an Indian family that sees itself as quite progressive, mm. but isn't really, yeah. right? Uh, because the boy is a treasured child mm. and the girl is there. Mm. She's loved, but she's not admired. Mm. She's not given the same input and encouragement that the boy is. And so we're all tied into these sorts of things, whether we, we want to or not. It's a question we need to start asking ourselves. Are we being fair to our daughters? Mm. What are we telling them about themselves? What are we telling them they're capable of? I'm amazed at girls who go to girls' schools, for example, mm. where they're given those messages again and again. And the kind of confidence that grows from that. Mm. And sometimes I look at girls who don't have that and I see sometimes they shrink. They shrink from attention. They shrink from difficult tasks. They shrink from tasks that require courage mm. or confidence. And that's something we need to start instilling in our girls. You are good enough. You're excellent. You're the best. Only the best is good enough for you, to mm. quote my dad, you know. Mm. These are the things we need to start programming our girls with. And at the same time, we need to start teaching our boys respect for their sisters mm. and their half-sisters and their cousins and whoever else. So the family is that domain. Mm. But you as a parent must be prepared to grapple with that. Mm. And, and grapple and, with your own patriarchal baggage. Yes, yes. Mm. Yeah, and, and we are all guilty of it at some point, Russell. Mm. We may not be aware of it, mm. but at times we are so socially conditioned and indoctrinated that we all fall into those traps. And so conscious parenting is what has to take over. Joanne, how do you think you are expanding the horizons of hope? <laughs> As I said to you, I think I might be expanding the horizons of despair. <laughs> because... No, I don't think so. <laughs> um, it's a difficult thing. Hope is always dressed up to be pretty. Mm. And in my mind, that's not hope. Mm. Hope sometimes requires the violent breaking down of conventions. Mm. Hope sometimes requires resistance. It requires rebellion. And once you've broken through those things, you can finally glimpse it, you know. Mm. That is what I'm trying to achieve. And I hope that it is succeeding. It's a matter of just bringing these issues into the public consciousness repeatedly, mm. even when people don't want to hear about them anymore. 
reminding people that change is possible. That's the other thing. Even where you don't think it is. Hopefully, bringing the sorts of people into conversations who can assist with giving people the tools to break down these walls. Mm. That is what I'm trying to do. And I'm really hoping that it's useful in some way to the country. I'd say you're doing a pretty good job of doing that. So, Joanne, thank you very much for your time and for agreeing to come and do this podcast with us. Thank you so much for having me, Russell. Please comment and subscribe to our podcast for more candid conversations, passionate people, and important issues. Expanding Horizons is produced by the Jesuit Institute South Africa with music and sound by Francis Tucson. This episode was presented by Russell Pollitt. Visit us at www.jesuitinstitute.org.za.